0: Welcome everyone to episode 85, Killer Antibodies. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen?
1: I'm all right. Although I'm just, uh, Maybe it's just my state of mind, but the title of today's show seems pretty intense and menacing, Killer Antibodies.
0: <laughs> killer. You know, like we could be talking about killer hamsters or something, but... You know, it's antibodies.
1: Antibodies. They do a lot of damage, these antibodies.
0: Yes, sniper Sniper antibodies. They just get you, get those. Yes, anyway, I'll stop now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's another good week. It's another good week. We're halfway through the week. We're going to make it through. I hope everyone out there is making it through their week as well. It's time to get down to our business, which is the business of the Stem Cell Podcast. Make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. You can find all of our past episodes and other great resources there. Of course, you can follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, we have a fabulous show lined up today. We are going to discuss the latest science in stem cell news, also interview stem cell scientist christopher park about his work using antibodies to destroy cancer stem cells there it is destroy kill kill them kill them yes,
1: yes. We, i guess we got to play to the media glut they love all this intensity so now the podcast, jumping on board kill it we're gonna kill some cancer with some antibodies yeah uh,
0: yeah but first we're gonna round it up you ready dalen
1: yep 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 let's get down to it but before we do that one last thing This week's roundup sponsored by Cell Therapy News. CTN has been publishing every week since 2002. That's 15 years. Cell Therapy News is Connexon Creative's longest running online publication. Cell Therapy News provides free weekly updates from all areas of regenerative medicine where they highlight the top cell therapy, gene therapy, and immunotherapy publications. Please go to celltherapynews.com to sign up for free to save time and keep current on the latest research and news. And then after you do that, I'll give you a minute, 10 (laughs) seconds. Are you done? Now listen to Kiki.
0: That's right. It's time for the roundup. And I have some stories lined up here. You ready to march? You ready to protest in the name of science? I'm so tired. <laughs> it's always good. Get out for a walk. You know, go outdoors. Okay. Breathe some fresh air. You know, it's good for idea generation. But a couple of months from now, on April 22nd, also called Earth Day, there is going to be a rally for publicly funded, openly communicated, evidence-based research. This is the March for Science And scientists and people who support science, scientists and the search and communication of evidence-based research can take part in these marches. They're going to be all over the world. Very similar to the Women's March. This was conceived after the march, and it was really strengthened by the news that the Trump administration is instructing government researchers not to communicate with the public and also that the government will be reviewing research before it will be allowed to be released to the public. So not really agreeing with this as open science communication... Researchers are planning a march in D.C., Washington, D.C., and satellite demonstrations. There are marches planned in at least 100 cities, or at least in the planning stages, and in 11 countries. 100 cities, 11 countries. This could be, I don't know, is science as big a deal as women? We will find out.
1: (laughs) Well, that's really the question, isn't it? Are there as many scientists on Earth as there are women? Well, no,
0: no, there are not. But (laughs) this event in Washington is going to culminate on the mall. It'll have speakers and teach-in tents where scientists will be sharing their research with the public. And organizers say that as of now, there have been more than 40,000 people signing up online to volunteer with this project. And they say the policies of this new administration really demand action. Carolyn Weinberg, a public health researcher and science writer who's co-organizing the march, said, we feel that the time is passed for scientists to, in good conscience, stay out of this fight. There is no need to be partisan. Politicians on both sides of the aisle are guilty of positions that fly in the face of scientific evidence. But it's not possible to ignore policy when it affects not just your jobs, but the future of your field. So a lot of researchers are skeptical still whether or not marching is a positive thing to do, to advocate for scientific work. They worry it's going to harm science. Coastal ecologist Robert Young wrote in an opinion piece, an editorial for the New York Times, that this march is going to be perceived as a protest of Trump. Trump. And it will trivialize and politicize the science we care so much about. So the question is, is it going to politicize science or is this going to be nonpartisan and just be speaking out for science? Another quote, Shanda Prescott Weinstein, a theoretical physicist at the University of Washington says that science has always been influenced by politics. The universe may be doing things without any regard for human politics. It probably is, but there's always an agenda that is shaping who can do research, how we think about the research that we're doing, and the research we think is important to do. If you're interested in finding out more about the March for Science, go to www.marchforscience.com.
1: Wow, well, we got to get out there and march. I don't know about the last quote, it was kind of elusive, but the first guy clearly just doesn't want his postdocs marching. And he's like, (laughs) no, don't, you're trivializing it, get back in the lab. Stay
0: in the lab. Yeah, we can all take a, maybe take a little science vacation for a day. I don't
1: know. Yeah, they should, although they need to widen the scope. I think anyone who's ever taken a science class, how about that?
0: If you've had vaccines, if you've ever had any medical treatment, <laughs> if you bought an iPhone, all oh, of these man. things. So it's going to be
1: Appalachia. Yes. Appalachia is going to be on the couch. and <laughs> the, rest, the rest of civilization.
0: Right. Oh, What's another? If you've ever contemplated the universe, Einstein was an immigrant. Maybe he wouldn't have come here on a, you know, if he couldn't get a visa to come and do his there. publications, right? March for the universe. For science. Researchers in China, at China's Northwest Agriculture and Forestry University, are not marching, but they're, you know, changing dairy cows, giving them a leg up against bacteria. See, marching, leg up.
1: Ha 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 That's good. I, I slipped. I'm glad you mentioned that when I said slip past.
0: So, how are they doing this? They are using CRISPR Cas9 to cut and paste a gene for a protein, N-CAMP1, that is linked to resistance against tuberculosis and other bacterial infections. They used for this CRISPR-Cas9 technique to insert into fetal dairy cow genomes. I mean, they used something like 2,000 or 2,500 embryos. So they started off with a large number of cow embryos. And they were like, all right, we'll see what happens. They ended up getting. Mother cows giving birth to 20 calves, and there were 11 that survived past three months. This technique needs some work, starting off with like 2,500 embryos and ending up with 11 calves surviving past three months.
1: Do they have to um, do it fresh every time, or it could be like a one-off? Can't they just start a whole new species? Or uh, <laughs> That's not the way it works with the cows, or they, they got to do it every time, I guess, huh?
0: Yeah, probably they'd have, they would have to do it every time. So anyway, these 11 surviving calves had heightened TB fighting abilities. This is reported in Genome Biology. So their accuracy was not great. A lot of off-target effects, obviously influencing development of the cow embryos. But a very exciting result, the ones that the gene got into were helped out. They could fight off tuberculosis a little bit better. So maybe we can do away with some of the antibiotics that are being used in the agricultural industries and maybe, you know, genetic mutants would be. The GMO,
1: yeah. The the GMO people are going to go crazy for this.
0: Everybody goes crazy for anything. Oh, my goodness. People, (laughs) come on.
1: People, People are the worst.
0: Let's just talk about things. The future's coming. Whether or not you want it to, go hide in a cave. If you don't, ah, go raise your own freaking cows in a cave.
1: <laughs> oh, we got a ranch going. <laughs> oh, now I got her going. All right, wait, <laughs> we'll finish your roundup
0: first. <laughs> I have two more stories. Great book that's out. I really, really am excited about reading this book after finding out about it. It's called The Perpetual Now. It's available on Amazon. And the story is so exciting. It's about a woman named Lonnie Sue Johnson. Do you have ever heard the story of HM, the man who had hippocampal damage? His real name was Henry Molayson, and nobody knew uh. his name until after he died. But patient HM had experienced seizures, and then they had to destroy his hippocampus. It stopped his seizures, but he completely became unable to form new memories, right? So he was just constantly living in the present. And so researchers, because of HM, were able to learn a lot about memory formation and the fact that there's a difference between memory for what you know and what you can do. There are two different brain systems for putting those things into your brain, right? So... This is a woman, Lonnie Sue Johnson, who in 2007, viral encephalitis destroyed her hippocampus. She lost basically all of her memories of her life, and she can't form new ones. She lives totally in the present, and a science journalist named Michael Lemonick has written this book telling the story of her life, having talked with people from her past, her family, friends, schoolmates, to be able to piece together her life and paint a portrait of this woman who now can't learn new things, can't remember new things. So she can play viola and she can practice her viola. She can learn new music, but she doesn't recognize the notes on the page. She doesn't remember having seen the music before when music is placed in front of her, but she can play it and she can learn new songs and put the the motor muscle memory away somewhere the neuroscientists are really curious about her brain because her education and her expertise. She was an illustrator. She produced many New Yorker covers. She was a private pilot and this amateur violist. She was, had a lot of expertise that contrasts very dramatically with the experience and expertise of HM. So the question is, you know, what is her brain going to teach us that HM's brain could not? And this book, I think, can be an amazing doorway into understanding amnesia, memory problems, the hippocampus itself. I'm excited about it because I studied the hippocampus, and that's one of my areas of focus. And so memory to me is just, I mean, it makes us who we are. Who are you if you don't remember your past? Who are you if you can't put new memories away to remember what you've done and you live only in the present?
1: Yeah, her ability to continue to learn. With practice, even though she wasn't learning, like, how do you learn? How do you incorporate a physical experience done over and over? It's clearly not by remembering it with your front brain, huh?
0: Yeah. And the really exciting thing about this book being available, again, called The Perpetual Now, it's on Amazon.com, and sales generated through the links to Amazon.com are going to contribute to Society for Science and the Public's programs. So it's going to contribute to... Basically, the understanding of science by the public, which is a very helpful thing. If you don't want to march on Washington, maybe a small portion of the proceeds of your purchase of this book can help people understand science a little bit better. And finally, I love birds. This is such a weird study chickens. All right. We want to make chickens in agricultural settings more comfortable. We've got these big industrial farms of chickens, and there are all these chickens. Human handlers come in, but the chickens are stressed out and frightened when the humans come in, and they can do things trying to get away from people. They'll hurt themselves. It's just not great. And so how can we have calmer, less stressed-out chicks, Right now, I don't. I really don't want eggs that are like from a stressed out mama bird, right? You don't want stress in those birds. So my alma mater, UC Davis, researchers there, Gregory Archer and Joy Mensch, have reported in Applied Animal Behavior Science that if you take chicken eggs and you expose them to 12 hours of light during incubation, that those chicks that were incubated under 12 hours – make fewer distress calls, and they really are calm next to a human. They don't really try and run away as much. As Archer says, chickens exposed to lots of light as eggs would sit in the closest part of the box to me and just chill out and the other chickens not exposed to this 12 hours of light spent their time trying to get away. We don't understand how light has this calming effect on the behavior of the chickens. It's really weird. One of the strange results is those chicks that were exposed to 12 hours of light appeared to show lateralization of how they chose to exit this box that they were in with the human. So when Archer sat down in the box... Those that had had the 12 hours left of light would very obviously choose to leave only through an exit on the right side of the box or only on the left side of the box. And previous research has shown that exposing chicks to light during incubation can have cerebral lateralization effects. So that the birds actually, like one side of the brain might actually be becoming more dominant than the other. Mm. So... Really weird, this thing, you see birds when they're sleeping, they kind of close one eye when they're sleeping and maybe they'll close. Have you ever seen that? I don't
1: look at birds.
0: Okay. Well, (laughs) birds demonstrate this behavior where they'll close one eye while they're sleeping. And it's because the opposite hemisphere of their brain is sleeping. They go back and forth in which hemisphere of the brain is sleeping. If If they've got one eye closed, you can go, oh, left eye closed, right side of the brain asleep. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's my intuition here, but my hypothesis is that when they expose these eggs to light while that embryo is developing, that they're screwing them up on one side of their brain. That's what I'm thinking. I don't know.
0: Possibly. I mean, chickens, they don't put their nests out in the open where light is going. I mean, chickens like to put their nests in little enclosed spaces. Yeah. This is yeah. why you have like these nest warm, dark nest areas for chickens.
1: I would say chilled out or like... <sighs> Burnt out. Dumb. Um, Semantics. (laughs) Yeah. Do you like your eggs dumb or stressed? That's That's a tough question. I'll take them dumb, to be honest. A dumb egg, you know, tastes just as good as a smart egg, in my view.
0: Yeah. So we'll see. They're going to start testing in large commercial incubators to see if this can reduce these anxious behaviors of chicks and chickens and lead to healthier, happier chickens.
1: Healthier and happier. Dumber and more docile.
0: That's right. <laughs>
1: right. So, you know, chickens, humans, mouse, pigs, we're all our own species. Sometimes. At the end of the day. Sometimes. <laughs> Maybe not always. So, this is really great. It's like a forecast of next week's show, which I'm super excited about. Yeah. I don't know about you, but it's going to be I'm so. I'm
0: very cool. excited.
1: Itch. Can we just do that show now? No, no, no. All, res- <laughs> All respect to Christopher Park. It's going to be great. But listen, I want to talk about the the piece we're going to do. It may go a little bit long. I'm sorry. But it's really cool stuff. You know, Chimera. We
0: can't tell people everything because we're doing the interview next week. Okay.
1: Okay. 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 I'm going to cut it in half right now.
0: <laughs>
1: I got to explain this. So the Chimera, let's start at the beginning. Chimera. Okay. Chimera in, in science. Chimera, it's a classic, classic means of making chimera is a classic means of determining the developmental potential of different sections of an embryo. The classic quail, chick chimera experiments, you could see like which tissue would give rise to what and is a response to that its own signals that it's making, or is it the environment? There's a million things we learned from chimera experiments. In popular media, chimera in contrast is like the island of Dr. Moreau. And and this is maybe why it's such a kind of ethical maelstrom surrounding this but I have to say, you know, we're going to have to talk about it because scientists have done it. They've created a human-pig hybrid in a milestone study. This is the first time that embryos, and, and specifically we could talk about embryos because, you know, you may be able to graft different tissue elements from postnatal animals, but this is them growing together as an embryo. And this is the first time they've combined two large, distantly related species. In the past, they've done mouse rat chimeras, but this is two distantly related species, not to mention it's pig and human. Ugh, this is crazy. So the group leader, Juan Carlos, is Pissua Belmonte. Sorry, doctor. I'm going to call you Juan Carlos. We'll get the pronunciation when we have Dr. Wu on the show, but please forgive me. I'm making a fool of myself by even saying it. So I'm calling you Dr. Juan Carlos. He led the work on the part pig, part human embryos at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla. And he told us, I didn't tell us, but he has said to a media outlet, the ultimate goal is to grow functional and transplantable tissues or organs, but we are far away from that. And this is an important first step. Now, as I alluded to, the study has reignited serious ethical concerns that are threatening to overshadow the promise. You know, this, we're talking about maybe building human organs in a non-human animal that could be useful for transplant. But the work inevitably raises a specter of, you know, animals with human brains there are these bizarre hybrids that are accidentally released into the wild and then breed to create a whole master race that takes over the universe. Well, Dr. Juan Carlos said that fears around chimeras were inspired largely by mythology in, in the media, really, rather than the realities of these meticulously controlled experiments. But he acknowledged, quote, the idea of having an animal being born composing of human cells creates some feelings that need to be addressed. What kind of feelings do you have about this, Kiki? Do you have some feelings? Does it make you feel things?
0: I have so many feels. No, it's. I think this is exciting. I've been waiting for regulations to be changed so that this kind of research could move forward. I mean, there was a very long period of time when researchers wanted to try this and governing bodies said no. No chance. I think this is great.
1: And we got to move forward because this is real now. And it turns out that the applications and potential of this is amazing. Just a little bit of detail so you can understand the scope of this experiment. What they did is they put human stem cells into early-stage pig embryos. They did this in more than 2,000 hybrids that they created. that were then transferred to surrogate sows. 150 of these 2,000, so less than 10%, but still a significant amount developed into chimeras that were mostly pig. But they had a little bit of human contribution, about 1 in 10,000 cells. But when you're talking about an animal that's like billions of cells, even at that early time point, that's significant. They were only allowed to develop to 28 days. That's the first trimester of a pig pregnancy before being removed, sacrificed, according to uh, Dr. Juan Carlos. This is long enough for us to try to understand how the human and pig cells mix together early on without raising the ethical concerns about mature chimeric animals. So I think they're really being careful here. They're respectful of all this controversy, and they're going in incremental steps. But these steps are huge. The major challenge with, with this, technically, is that the pig pregnancy lasts over 100 days compared to nine months in humans, meaning that like, the timing is not exactly synced. and The developmental timing is like, it's different rates. So the human cells need to be injected right at the right stage, and if they don't, they'll kind of derail the whole developmental process. Jun Wu, the paper's lead author, scientist at Salk, who's going to be on the show next show, says, it's like if you're going onto a highway where the cars are traveling three times faster than you are. You need to choose the right timing. Otherwise, you can cause an accident. So I think, you know, doing these experiments, they're not only a major step forward in just understanding the developmental mechanisms, but we need to fine-tune these approaches so that we could conceivably time it right, so that we could get minimal contribution to tissues we don't want, say the brain, and create whole organs that have enough human complement that they can be transplanted into patients who are in dire need. So Jun Moo will be a guest on episode 86 And we're going to get even more info than I just provided, which is, you know, only scratch the surface if you can believe it.
0: Yeah, it's just, I'm excited to find out a lot more about how they can target specific organs more accurately. So, you know, if you want a pancreas, grow it in a pig or a cow, how can we do that better so that we can have animals help us farm organs so that we don't have to worry so much about the donor situation like that we have in the world right now?
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
0: The potential for this is very exciting and I hope that we can be part of providing a really open conversation so that it will help the whole field move forward, will help the conversation generally move forward so that more people talk about it and more people understand that it's not. This isn't like... This isn't a cartoon, guys. It's not a cartoon. It's not a crazy mythological chimera. This is something that is being done to help us understand ourselves.
1: And serious questions will be invited. Any listener, we invite you to uh, email us with your questions. You know, it's yeah. a unique opportunity to talk to the person on the ground here who's doing the work, has a unique insight and experience. So if you have some questions, please send them in. Something less controversial, we can always get behind uh, getting rid of glioblastoma. That ain't no good. A study led by Cleveland Clinic researchers explains how this terrible cancer can avoid the immune system. The study uncovers some of the mystery behind how Glio glioblastoma, which is one of the most deadly brain cancers that recurs often. And it's a study how this cancer resists most treatments, including chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy. You throw anything, you know, the kitchen sink at this cancer, it's just laughing at you. The study was published just now in Cell Stem Cell. Justin Lafayette, the researcher and uh, Cleveland Clinic's Lerner Research Institute, led the team. They found that glioblastoma stem cells lose this specific receptor that would otherwise let them sense that they're in a damaged microenvironment. And if they had sense that they're in a damaged microenvironment, they would undergo a programmed cell death or bind into immune cells that would kill them. Ah, the killer antibodies, haha. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're downregulated. They have a lower level of this receptor. It's called TLR4. Having an abundance of TLR4 stops, usually, cancer stem cells or cancer cells from multiplying. But the lower levels in the glioblastoma cells allows them to persist and multiply. It's like the cancer stem cells have their headphones on. They have lost the ability to sense the environment around them, according to Lathia, again, who led the study. These TLRs, they usually enable the sensing of hostile inflammatory signals that are emitted by tumors. And this stops the cells, when it stops the cells from dividing, and recruits the immune system to wipe them out. Until now, until this study, we didn't know why glioblastoma cells were so robust, and they didn't spark the same get damage response. So now that we do know, thanks to Justin Lothia, we're going to have some insight, and maybe we can shift our strategy. According to, again, Dr. Lothia, we now know a lot more about the biology of the tumor, and that provides additional therapies to be considered. The next step is to screen drugs that are going to allow us to determine which makes stem cells more sensitive to their environment. We can hear from Dr. Lothia again on the stem cell podcast because if it's published in a major journal we have it on the show kiki
0: that's right we're gonna get that Getting interview in there love guy. it
1: he's gonna be a guest on an upcoming episode not next week because we have the other major story but we're gonna bring lafay on because he's my man he's not my man but i would like him to be
0: <laughs> you're excited I about him. speaking with i want to be yeah, his friend can okay. we be
1: friends <laughs> oh, oh, oh. so pathetic <laughs> oh, so <my> desperate oh <laughs> my <laughs> all right. My desperation aside, I want to talk to you in the last half of my roundup very quickly mm. about endocrinology. Okay, guys? Endocrinology, you're all saying, what? Well, endocrine is probably centered to the most important experiences of your life. I'm going to get out there and say that. You know why? Because endocrinology is a study of your hormonal system. We've all been there. we all been there. All right? Uh, so I'm going to start with a story.
0: I go, I, about, I'm i there a uh, lot. <laughs>
1: You still there? Oh, man. Well, I passed through that. Now I'm like, hormonal decline. It's a total disaster. And that gets to the second half of my story. But let's start with another mystery, the thyroid. You know, what's the thyroid, people say? Well, first, let's just say why this is an important story. Scientists have found a way to efficiently engineer new thyroid cells from stem cells. Now, remember, this is in mice, but it's a first step towards treating human thyroid disorders. Okay? Okay. And diseases, uh, a report that was published in Stem Cell Reports. Now, again, what's the thyroid? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. But you ought to. The thyroid is a gland in the middle of the lower neck. And it produces hormones, you know, hormones, action at a distance. They reach every cell, organ, tissue. They help control metabolism, notably growth, puberty, all kinds of cyclical elements of our miserable existence in adults (laughs) and as teenagers. Oh, it's all so gross. But thyroid diseases are also common, you know, outside of puberty and all the other stuff that we love about the thyroid. The thyroid diseases are pretty common, which the gland is either hyperactive or hypo, you know, produces too much or too little. It's hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. It's thought that around twenty million people are living with some kind of thyroid disease. That's a huge number. Twenty million, and we don't really know why they have these diseases. The researchers in this study, they find a way to coax cells into thyroid cells. They found, notably, I think, they use this kind of transient overexpression system, and they flashed on NKX 2.1, this gene, for short periods. And they found that there was like this narrow time frame during which if you turned on this gene, you could get like almost all of the stem cells to convert to thyroid cells. So I think it's big and cool, not just because you make more thyroid, which everybody loves. If you have some kind of element of disease, you could do a replacement regenerative type thing. But it's nice because it shows that in, like, certain differentiation paradigms, just having the on, the gene on for a narrow window, not only having it on is, it like, sufficient, but sometimes it's really necessary to go in a specific developmental window, a receptive window, to get the tissue you want with any kind of robust efficiency. So I think this yeah. is an indication of that phenomenon. And, and a lot of people looking to make a lot of different types of tissues probably have a lot to learn from this insight. Yeah. So, if Kiki doesn't want to cuz she's over there thinking about her endocrine right now. How's your endocrine function? Are you good?
0: <laughs> I think Are you it's good? okay. I think I'm good. Yeah. All right,
1: then I'm go, I'm going to go. My thyroid's doing well.
0: You keep it's moving thyroid. on. Yeah. It's
1: popping right now. I can see there's like it like, well,
0: functions.
1: <laughs> it is functioning and that's is all you can ask, right? So, Let's move on, then, to um, direct reprogramming of mouse fibroblasts towards Leydig-like cells by defined factors. You're all saying, what the heck is a Leydig cell? Well, it's another critical endocrine mediator. Leydig cells play crucial roles in producing testosterone, and their dysfunction leads to male hypogonadism. You know, nobody wants to be hypogonad. You know, maybe hype I don't even want to be hyper gonad.
0: It's go it's like Goldilocks. You want it, you know, you want, you want it just right. right. In the middle. Yeah, right, I mean, in, the right middle.
1: in the middle. Yeah. You know I just I'm taking a look at the author list here. I see last author, Yadong Huang. You know, he's just right with his gonad <laughs> <I tell> you <ya. laughs> All right, Kiki, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to Yadong Doctor Huang. I'm Sorry. Let me get back on track. Okay. Lydic cell transplantation, it's a promising alternative therapy for male hypogonadism. However, the source of Lydic cells, it's, it's tough. You know, we can't get them. How do we get the Lydic cells? We're not going to go into the testis, right? So this is a report in reprogramming mouse fibroblasts. This is in cell stem cells. It's a big deal. High-profile journal. Directly programming mouse. I mean, this is for mice with hypogasm, I guess, but it's coming soon for humans. You can directly reprogram these fibroblasts from a mouse, presumably human, maybe two, into lytic cells by expressing just three factors, DMRT1, GATA4, and NR5A1, just those three. These induced lytic like cells expressed steroidic genes. They had a global gene expression profile similar to that of adult lytic cells. They acquired androgen synthesis capabilities, all indications that these were functional. When they were transplanted to rat or mice testis that were depleted of endogenous lytic cells the transplanted cells survive and they functioned in the interstitium of the testis. That's where you want them to be in the interstitium. That's where they do their work. And this resulted in restoration of totally normal levels of serum testosterone. So, you know, it seems we have all these direct, we reprogram this to that and the other thing, but this is like one of those where they did it and then they put it in and it worked and it totally fixed the problem. So this is a study that is probably going to facilitate future applications in regenerative medicine, Specifically with the treatment of hypogonasm in males?
0: It would definitely be you know, you haven't in this individuals who have some kind of issue with their Leydig cells. You know, are you transplanting it in, and then how long are the cells going to survive? Will you have to re transplant at any point in time? This isn't really fixing the whole problem. So, is there some kind of chemical issue? or even hormonal issue that's leading to the hypogonadism that'll eventually affect the Leydig cells again. It's not necessarily solving the problem, but it could be a therapeutic stopgap, right?
1: Well, Kiki, thanks for throwing cold water on my gonads, for <laughs> Christ's sake. Oh, my goodness. You can
0: count on me. <laughs> the skeptic.
1: Well, you're right. I have to say you're right. My gonads are shriveled, but you're right. And I mean, I'm going to have to get some Leydig cells, a little shot of Leydig right here to pump me back up. All right, I went too far. So let me tell you, though, you're right. But I will say, I will say, although the cause and the re- relapse, I think what's rare in these studies is that the, the functionality. So I love to see when they come in. And I love endocrine stories because no one really gives endocrine enough credit for all the role that endocrine man, plays endocrine, in your everyday life. Endocrine's all over, girl.
0: Everything. It Every, endocrine everything. Endocrine is everything. Endocrine oh my, is everything. my goodness. Seriously. Yes.
1: So that's that. The roundup is done. We've done it. Half hey. endocrine, half amazingness with, you know, guests that are going to come on the show and serenade us with their science.
0: Oh, the science serenade. It is coming up because it is the interview segment. This is a good roundup. There was a lot of good stuff in here this week. Remember, everyone, that all the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you if you sign up for our newsletter. Right now, we're going to get into the interview segment of the show. With our interview today focused on the blood stem cells, our friends at Stem Cell Technologies invite us to culture our expertise in hematopoiesis, blood generation, with our new webinars, tech tips, and expert interviews. Listeners may be interested in our recent webinar with Dr. Susan Imran, where she discussed her work regarding the roles of notch and small molecule um 171 on the in vitro expansion of cord blood hsc somatopoietic stem cells in vitro you can start exploring right now at stemcell.com slash hemahub that's h-e-m-a-h-u-b stemcell.com slash hemahub and i went over and took a look at it and there's some really interesting information there i mean there's A lot more than just the webinar with uh, Dr. Imran, there are brochures and it's a portal to information. So you can really start exploring there.
1: There's a poster. Is there a poster there? I bet there's a poster There is a link to
0: a poster there. There is. I saw it. (laughs) There's a poster. All right. Okay. So our guest today is Dr. Christopher Park. He is an associate professor and director of pathology education and translational research at the NYU Langone Medical Center. His lab is currently looking at new ways to combat blood cancers like leukemia by attacking and destroying the blood stem cells. Today, Dr. Park will discuss his lab's work and the details of his most recent publication in science translational medicine. Dr. Park, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Welcome to you as well, Kirsten.
0: It's wonderful to have you here. So, just to get started, can you just give us a bit more detail about what you do in your lab? What's your lab's focus?
2: Sure. Well, my laboratory is really a laboratory that focuses on blood cancers, and we're interested in studying blood cancers that we think arise from normal stem cells. In many cases, the cancers that arise from these stem cells themselves have subsets of cells that sort of behave like stem cells. So we're always looking for new ways to identify them so that we can find new ways to diagnose and treat patients.
1: Awesome. So uh, you said cancer stem cells, and then you, I guess you're talking about like progenitors, like downstream malignant progenitors. Is that a, a I get kind of confused because, you know, the, there is all this craze about and justifiably about the cancer stem cell, targeting the cancer stem cell. But, you know, there can be malignancy downstream. Is, are the progenitors, do they not self-renew? Is that what makes them not stem cells, but they can still form tumors? Can you just clarify what distinguishes a
2: cancer stem cell? Sure. I mean, you're picking up on a lot of different controversies, I think, in the field. And they start with one aspect of it. So when we talk about cancer cells themselves, cancer stem cells historically have been defined by their functional characteristics that, are, that resemble normal stem cells. And as you know, you know most normal adult tissue stem cells, we assay their function by, at least in the blood system, by transplanting them and seeing whether or not they can reestablish the blood. So same thing now with leukemia. That principle is established where you take a leukemia, you show whether or not there are certain cells within it that when they tra- once they're transplanted, actually can reinitiate the leukemia. And where those cells come from is a bit of a controversy because in order to really know where they come from, you have to find ways to mark cells in a very sort of high fidelity way and then actually watch them turn into leukemia. Unfortunately, there's really not really good ways to do that. So instead, we infer from what the leukemic uh, the cells within the leukemia that exhibit this stem cell property, we look at them and then we compare them to normal stem cells and progenitors and we sort of infer where they may have come from. So, this is maybe wrong in terms of how we think about it. And I think a lot of new data about how we think about cell of origin and blood cancers is sort of being turned upside down as we realize that, you know, making this assumption that the leukemia stem cell. You know, by comparing it to normal progenitors or stem cells, we can actually figure out where it comes from. That that may be incorrect, right? Because we think that there's probably plasticity in these tumor cells. And then of course there's potentially plasticity even among normal stem and progenitors. So they're both moving targets, and whether or not you can conclude decisively where these cells come from, I, I think is still a question that's sort of open.
0: And when you're talking about treatment eventually, I mean, do you have to target exactly where they're coming from? does tissue of origin really matter or point of origin really matter as long as you can find them?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think that historically people would have, you know, definitely said, well, so this is a basic science question, right? Where it is, what cell, mm-hmm. you know, accumulates mutations and then what turns into leukemia? But there is a sort of a budding field, what we'll call pre-leukemic stem cells. And, you know, people have really been able to show, including our group in our recent paper, that even in leukemia patients, if you sort out non-leukemic cells that are their sort of normal stem cells, meaning that if you take these cells out of a leukemia patient, they still are able to give rise to normal lymphoid and myeloid cells in the blood when you transplant them. They already harbor these early mutations. And so we know that they're early events. And the fear is that these may actually be the reservoir from which relapse occurs right mm-hmm. we we think that it's only the fully transformed cell that can reinitiate leukemia's after treatment but there are patients who relapse a little bit later and it's really unclear whether or not there's sort of an ongoing sort of pool of non-leukemic cells that are still acquiring other mutations that can eventually give rise to those relapse leukemias it's more than a basic science question in my mind
1: okay this is uh, I mean speaking of basic basic science that translates to the clinic though and and following up on your question, this is a good time to elaborate maybe on your study and the the ideas that really you're putting forward there. Would you mind
2: yeah absolutely uh, you know our our studies really were originating from just figuring out at sort of what molecularly characterized stem cells in myeloid disorders, meaning acute myeloid leukemia, myeloid splastic syndrome that distinguish them from normal stem cells. And, you know, there's a lot of literature that suggests there are very similar fundamental mechanisms that regulate self-renewal in both the normal and malignant state. But, you know, still there's something obviously different about the malignant stem cells, right? Because these uh, cells have acquired some mutations that presumably rewire their gene expression programs, their chromatin accessibility states, so on and so forth. And so we started out by doing what a lot of groups have been doing for a long time, which is looking for differentially expressed genes. And we have many, there are literally thousands of reproducible gene expression changes in disease stem cells, whether or not you compare myelodysplastic syndrome stem cells to normal stem cells or acute myeloid leukemia what we thought at that time were enriched for stem cells versus normal stem cells but as a hematopathologist obviously I'm interested in things that we could easily measure and translate into the clinical setting so in hematopathology we use flow cytometry to identify cell surface proteins that are differentially expressed between malignant and normal states so that's an obvious set of molecules to go after right if there's a protein that's on the surface that's in the malignant state but not in the normal that might give me a way to diagnose the disease maybe track the disease even after the patient's been treated to look for minimal residual disease and then of course they may be specific antigenic targets that we can take advantage of with targeted molecules meaning antibodies or if we can understand how those cell surface proteins may signal into the cell maybe that will reveal some other vulnerabilities for these stem cells. But that's kind of the genesis of the, the project. We obviously find that CD99 is frequently overexpressed in highly purified stem cell subsets in MDS patients compared to normal, and also in what was previously thought to be the most enriched stem cell population within acute myeloid leukemia. And what the excitement around this marker is, is that it's so frequently occurring in greater than 80% of patients sort of irregardless of their mutational status that it seems like something that would be generally useful both in the diagnostic and the therapeutic setting.
0: Do we know what is CD99? What is? Do we know what it does or what it signals to in the, in the cell?
2: Sure. Uh, yeah, that was obviously the big question when we started this. And I wish there was actually a little bit more known because things might have been a little bit easier for us. But the reality is, CD99, the most of the literature has been really studying in the context of mature effector cells in the immune system, so T cells, neutrophils, and monocytes. And there it actually has been shown very nicely by a number of groups, probably notably Bill Muller, who's at Northwestern now, that it really regulates the ability of these cells to migrate across endothelium. So it's a transendothelial migration mediator or regulator in sort of the normal hematopoietic context. Now, CD99 has been shown to be upregulated in certain blood cancers, notably T lymphoblastic leukemias. And we actually use that as a marker for diagnosis in the pathology setting. So it's a well-known marker to us in that sense. And it's also known to be upregulated in other solid tumors in patients notably Ewing sarcoma. But it's not really generally thought to be something that's present on other human cancers or other cell types. So when we found it as being upregulated by using more sensitive techniques, meaning flow cytometry as compared to immunohistochemistry, we were very excited about the fact, again, how frequently it was overexpressed. We assumed that it has a similar function in acute myeloid leukemia and MDS, and we have some early data in the laboratory using simple model systems and in, in vitro tissue culture models across transwells that it probably has this sort of function in acute myeloid leukemia, but we haven't really proven that in vivo. So it's a little unclear, but it's likely that it's regulating the ability of these cells to move around from the bone marrow to the blood and, and potentially back from the blood into the bone marrow.
1: So in terms of that transit, how do you think like therapeutically is your targeting approach working by minimizing the chance of the disease, these abnormal cells to like transmigrate, metastasize and spread? Like would you use them coupled with the typical chemotherapy to try and ablate and avoid them hiding out in these residual reservoir niches? Is that the idea that it's like it's a spreading phenomenon or is it just targeting the cells directly for apoptosis? I mean, I know you have in the study the SARC family kinase element. Maybe you could elaborate on the mechanism of action a little bit so we could distinguish those two.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as far as the paper goes and, and the mechanism of action of our antibody we show that the antibody applied to cells both in a tissue culture dish or into an animal engrafted with the human leukemia that we can eliminate the leukemia. We think that most of those effects are by directly causing those leukemic cells to die. Now, whether or not you can take advantage of that in combination with therapeutic approaches that might mobilize leukemia cells out of the bone marrow, we think that's a different possibility. You know, these types of strategies have been used in human AML so patients can be treated with things like GCSF to mobilize leukemic cells out of the bone marrow into the peripheral blood you get a transient increase in the number of leukemic cells in the blood and we know that those leukemic cells are very sensitive to elimination with even standard chemotherapy so you could use our antibody in combination with mobilization strategies like GCSF we think that's definitely a possibility and something that we would probably want to try once we get the antibody that can go into people. But it's also possible that the antibody could have this additional role in addition to its direct cytotoxicity. It could be an additive sort of uh, effect of the antibody where we might have two different activities that would help us clear leukemic cells more effectively.
0: So when we're talking about this actually moving closer to Therapy. I mean, I love the the, um, flow cytometry. I mean, that's something that a lot of hospitals might be able to apply very easily. And so is this one of the main reasons you're going this direction to make it quicker and easier to be able to identify and then to go on to therapeutic?
2: I think that's... uh... I mean the goal obviously is to get the therapy into the patients as a pathologist I sort of see low hanging fruit as identifying a biomarker that will help us identify disease cells with you know very high levels of sensitivity because this is something we struggle with as pathologists on a, on a routine basis right a patient comes in they respond very well to some therapy and you're trying to figure out whether or not it's likely that you clear the disease or if there's any likelihood of disease coming back. In fact, you know there's some strategies in flow cytometry in the context of acute lymphoblastic leukemias where we could detect by flow cytometry residual cells down to a frequency of maybe 1 in 100,000, and it's very predictive on who will actually relapse. Right. So the sooner you can find really low levels of bona fide disease, presumably that will trigger some clinical intervention, or at the minimum, certainly better surveillance of those patients. But, you know, ideally, if you could detect these cells at very low levels, and whether or not it's an anti-CD99 directed therapy or or something else, you know, it will allow you to start treating patients before they have a full-blown relapse leukemia, where they're really suffering all the consequences of having their bone marrow essentially replaced by these leukemic cells. So, I think that's kind of the ultimate goal, right? To treat patients even if, who we know will relapse even before the disease is obvious, but obviously to do it in a non-toxic way.
1: Obviously, you're close to the field and you know better than I. But I've heard this in, in different contexts. People looking at looking for one thing and and seeing that there's a low level in healthy patients of these pre-mutations, particularly. In uh, that are predictive of hem- hematologic malignancies. So are we talking about patients who have already manifested full-blown, diagnosable in a traditional context, and then once they're treated and in remission, you can kind of anticipate and squelch any relapse? Are we talking about pre-treating patients? Are we talking about routine? Like, is that a, is something that you could envision, where you have a routine screens on a smaller scale that because you have these really predictive markers with high sensitivity, that you could see the leukemia in these pre-mutation patients, or you could see something that's predictive of them and then just shut it down? Is that like a realistic landscape, do you think?
2: I think uh, many people in the field believe so, and I think my bias is that I think it's clearly something that could happen. The pre-treatment that you're talking about, sort of the anticipatory, what I would call preventative treatments, you have to basically convince people that that's financially viable, right? So, you know, the the work from multiple groups out of Boston as well as and WashU have really shown that you can find some of these early mutations even in people younger than 40. And it's probably even earlier than that. It's we're really just limited by the sensitivity of our sort of uh, exome sequencing techniques. So, you know, my guess is that, you know, people will develop mutations even earlier and probably that's also telling you that, you know, the early lesions that predispose people in their older age to develop these diseases really occurs, you know, there's a huge separation in time. Now, the question would be, if you find one of these mutations, right, can you pretreat these people before they really have any clinical, really overt manifestations? I, I think it'd be all, in terms of convincing insurance companies to do that but of course even convincing somebody to do a run a clinical trial and how you would design that is very problematic right because now you have to have a group of patients who have evidence of an early mutation and then you got to put them on some sort of intervention for you know 20 to 30 years to see what happens so <laughs> yeah it's a very difficult thing on the other hand i do believe that that's eventually we're going to go with this I think that there's a lot of things you could do in preclinical models even in mice to show that an intervention can maybe suppress that clone for example right there there are a lot of these mutations that we know will be there in the final leukemia or when the patient has mds and they're targeted molecules against those mutated targets that are in development so let's say you acquire one of those mutations let's say it's a A spicing factor mutation or something. Well, maybe you don't have the disease, but if it's cheap enough, right, let's say it's like aspirin, you could take it over the counter. Well, maybe you could suppress that clone for a longer period of time so that it doesn't really expand within the stem cell pool and then theoretically increase your risk of getting those other mutations that follow afterwards. But you obviously have to have some kind of therapy that is so innocuous, right, in general, and then eventually you can make it cheap enough that that people would actually take it. But accumulating that data and to do it in a prospective way in a clinical trial, I see that as a very difficult thing. It's sort of like people trying to test the effect of anti-aging interventions. It's really hard to design a trial and whether or not anybody's ever going to pay for those kinds of studies, you know, that's another question entirely.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm imagining these technologies that are already kind of in experimentation, but whether or not they'll get to the point of being able to be used therapeutically like this. For instance, autologous bone marrow transplants where you take somebody's bone marrow out and then use CRISPR-Cas9, some version of that to be able to splice out that mutation or replace it with a fixed version and then put the bone marrow right back in if it's the mutation has been detected at, at high enough levels, maybe to warrant and that invasive of a procedure.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think conceptually it makes some sense. I mean, obviously, practically, there are a lot of reasons why that can't be done today. Yeah, uh, obviously, the targeting problems and then yeah. even the procedure of transplantation. But I have to tell you, we're, you know, we, we do have a project in the laboratory in collaboration with some others, you know, really on finding new ways to make transplantation itself very safe for patients autologous transplants presumably when you are conditioning patients or prepping them for transplantation they may not undergo as sort of severe sort of basically chemotherapy
0: the rejection issues either
2: Well, I mean, the rejection is an entirely, uh, it's almost another separate issue. But, you know, as you know, we don't transplant older patients because they usually have other health issues and they're as likely to die from the transplant as from their disease or the disease coming back. And so we try to chronically manage their disease and try to keep their quality of life as high as possible. But if you can make transplantation safe, let's say that suddenly, miraculously, you can make transplantation so safe that nobody will die from the transplant itself. Yeah. Well, then, heck, then now you can realistically try these types of interventions, like you described with gene editing, and then you don't have to worry about the negative effect of the transplant itself. It would, you know, obviously really encourage people to try these strategies, I think. So, I'm really kind of heartened by some activity in the bone marrow transplantation field. You know, identifying better ways to prepare people for bone marrow transplant, and I think that will open the door for people to realistically think about bringing gene editing even into bone marrow transplantation setting even faster. obviously, there's you know many people are interested in doing this anyway in the context of inherited you know immunodeficiencies or with you know different thalassemia types and et cetera, et cetera. You know people are really interested in this already. My guess is that those people will be the first to really try gene editing and showing that it works in people, but if you really need to completely replace the bone marrow with a new graft, you have to be actually much more efficient in your transplants, right? You don't have to correct somebody 100% to cure some of these other diseases that people are trying to do by gene editing and bone marrow transplant.
1: Right. So, yeah, I think you guys are all over there in the five to ten years ver- land. <laughs> but in, in terms of immediate application with the low-hanging fruit, you mentioned this and alluded to it, but I wonder, are you starting to pile up patient data to see if, not prospective trials in terms of suppression or treatment, but just saying, hey, I got this, these pre-mutation types, and I'm going to follow them. Do you have enough healthy patients, I guess, that are going that you can track? Like,
2: is that, do you have a project
1: going like that? So maybe you can see it. Well, yeah. Temporarily?
2: yeah, I mean, we, we don't, but you know, the, I think the groups that published on these early mutations that come in older patients who otherwise look normal, they do have those data sets, right? Because they actually collected the blood or other tissue on patients in very large cohorts of basically healthy individuals. And we're tracking, right. Other sort of associations epidemiologically, right. Between. Lifestyle choices and other outcomes. So, you know, I think that the original study from uh, Ben Ebert's group, I mean, I think it was actually a large cohort of patients, and hopefully I don't remember this entirely correctly, but they were, you know, basically looking at factors that were associated with diabetes, but they obviously had a lot of normal people in that group as well. And they had you know, banked their material for over really long periods of time. So there are obviously these really large studies like the, the Framingham Nursing Study. These large cohorts of patients that are tracked over many, many years, if you have tissue, you can mine that kind of information. And, and they were smart enough in that particular study where they, well, somebody had the foresight to save peripheral blood so that you could actually look for the presence of mutations in hematopoietic cells. Well, at some level, you know that's already been done, right? so you can show that if you you see a mutation, that person clearly has a higher risk for higher risk of dying early and a higher risk of developing blood cancers. But you know the overall risk is still relatively small, but it is a risk factor, obviously, once you see one of those mutations.
1: you mean uh, specifically the mutation for that leads to c d ninety nine i mean c d ninety nine phenotype being predictive
2: yeah. oh well, yeah, okay so. The low-hanging fruit for CD99, as I see it is, you basically look at a group of people, you know, again, if they're healthy, large group, and you see evidence, let's say, by flow cytometry, that CD99 is elevated on, let's say, their stem cells in their bone marrow, then maybe that might be predictive. But that study is actually really hard to do because we we just don't get that kind of material out of healthy patients. So that's probably not going to ever happen. But what you could do is look at let's say a patient with myelosplastic syndrome and see, do they have a high probability of transforming into acute leukemia, right? So these diseases are highly related about 30% of MDS patients will develop acute myeloid leukemia, that state to the AML state. So if I had a known MDS patient and measuring CD99, and I suddenly see that it's going up higher than the prior sample, that might be somebody who you might think might be at high risk of developing acute myeloid leukemia. And those studies can be relatively easily done in centers where you have large numbers of, let's say, MDS patients being evaluated by flow cytometry. So that's that's something that we're doing here at NYU, but you know, it's something that could be done really fairly easily at any busy, relatively busy cancer center.
0: Nice. And so where are you going next? What's next on your plate?
2: Well, you know, one of the things that our paper highlighted is that not only does our marker identify leukemia and can distinguish it from normal hematopoietic stem and progenitors, but the other thing that it can do is that the cells within the leukemia that have the highest levels of expression of the marker are really enriched for this ability of reestablishing leukemias upon transplantation. So we, we argue it's a leukemia stem cell marker, and it's actually the first really, I think, really good marker that can distinguish among leukemic cells in a very sort of robust way those cells that have this ability to reinitiate leukemias. And so we, in the paper, describe many of these gene expression differences between these two populations. So we want to understand really at the molecular level what's different about these cells. So we didn't characterize, for example, whether or not the mutational spectrum of cells in the leukemia differ based on their ability to reinitiate leukemias or not. So that's something that's very simple to do, right? We can sort cells that are high levels of expression for cdN nine versus low. We can look at their somatic mutations. We can look at the RNA expression data and look if there are differences in other genes that we really didn't consider right on our first pass analysis. as you know, in our field, there's a concept that differential splicing may actually be regulating the genes that are being expressed and therefore their protein products. We actually haven't mined our data for that. And it actually allows us to actually start to do other types of studies on a large scale that haven't been really done before in leukemic stem cells, which is things like directly measure proteins using high-throughput proteomic approaches. So these are all things that we're interested in. But I I think more importantly, once you can isolate these cells, now you could actually just do, you know, maybe you have a certain pathway you think is important. Well, you could do a very short-term perturbation even in in the dish. Transplant those cells and see whether or not you've actually affected their ability to transplant the disease. And so, you know, we actually have all kinds of things like that that are sort of in the works. But, you know, obviously developing uh, therapeutic grade antibodies against uh, the protein are things that we're very much interested in. We describe one of our new clones in the paper that really can directly uh, kill these cells. And we could actually show that, at least in our xenograph models, that the antibody has sort of a selective effect against leukemic stem cell enriched populations. So, obviously, antibody therapeutic development is something that we're very much interested in as well. Wow. Tremendously fertile ground. (laughs) I mean, we think so. You know, I think uh, the a lot of other, you know, sort of novel concepts that were in the paper really, I think, are challenging the way we think about even heterogeneity within cancers. You know, the cancer, I think, Dalen, I mean, one of the things about the cancer stem cell hypothesis that really became very controversial was that, you know, people have always felt like, well, there are certain cells that can perform very well in transplantation assays. But, you know, maybe it's just because, you know, they have different mutations or, you know, or things like that. I, I think our data sort of suggests that that's really not the basis of the, the differences in the functional heterogeneity. And I think we have a, a unique way to separate out and to actually demonstrate that that's really not Distinguishes this population, which has this unique property, right, of being able to transplant the leukemia. So, if that's the case, you know, that really means that some of the original ideas around the cancer stem cell hypothesis probably are still true in leukemia. And so, you know, in some ways, we're reaffirming, I think, some ideas that are relatively old, but that have been controversial for a while. And I I think the problem in our field really has been that we haven't really had really good ways to purify these cells in a way where we really had highly purified stem cell populations. We always had a lot of noise. And so we think that we have more clarity on what regulates these cells. And so you're right. We have many, many more years, I think, to figure out what really distinguishes them. But, you know, we're very excited about it.
0: Yeah, I think this point that you bring up also is about the controversialness. You know, maybe things were not as accurate once upon a time as they were historically as they are becoming now. And so maybe this will solve part of the non-replication problem in, in cancer research publishing. You know, maybe this is part of the issue that there's this, the increased accuracy will really get at these underlying controversial hypotheses and make them non, not so controversial anymore. Well,
2: we hope so. The biggest, I think, you know, unresolved question, which our study does and not actually resolve, which I will acknowledge in the cancer stem cell field, is this idea that, you know, cancer cells can sort of toggle between a stem cell-like state and a non-stem cell-like state, like it's a reversible or a plastic state. You know, I would not necessarily argue against that possibility. But you know, as as my mentor Erb Weissman at Stanford always said, regardless of whether or not they can toggle between the states, they are different states that are regulated by different pathways. And as long as you could figure out what pathway is important in the stem cell-like state, the higher likelihood you're going to get something that's really going to be able to target the stem cell-like populations, which is really what you have to eliminate, Mm -hmm. right? The beauty of our strategy, and actually most therapies out there is that people sort of stem cell targeted therapies is they actually kill most of the cancer cells in addition to killing what they are calling cancer stem cells. So similarly, our antibody kills everything and it kills what we think are truly leukemic stem cells. So nobody's really developed a therapy that only hits the stem cell and the cancer with, you know, leaving everything else untouched. You know, if you could actually generate that kind of therapy, that would be very exciting. Although I'm not even sure that's really necessary. You know, as long as you get a therapy that you know really effectively hits bona fide cells that have this ability to sell for new, I think you have a chance for a curative therapy. And, you know, I think those basic ideas around the cancer stem cell hypothesis really, I don't think anybody's refuted that idea. I think you know, people have just refined the ideas around whether or not they, a stem cell always remains a stem cell or not. That's sort of, at at some level, it's not that important in terms of advancing some of these therapies forward, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think though it's
1: certainly one step along the way, your insights here, and uh, it's a long journey. I think we're near the end, though, for a lot of these cancers in no small part thanks to you and your mentor, Irv. Irv we all love Irv, the grandfather of all the CDs. <laughs> I think it's interesting, a CD99, don't you think there's a little bit of serendipity to that? The last of the double-digit CDs, you must have been like, yeah, it's too good to be true, or maybe well, you're I, just... I, I don't
2: know. I've been stuck in the 90s. You know, my lab also studies microRNAs, and we're stuck with you know microRNAs that are in the 90s as well. So, um... Well,
1: you know, if you're like me, you peaked in
2: the 90s, my friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I think my, my peak might have been earlier than You, Uh, I think I got some years on you. So, but (laughs) you know, it's like okay. I have to admit, it's pretty hilarious uh, that it's 99. But uh, for us, it's just another protein that we can we can target and take advantage of. And my expectation is it's going to tell us a lot about not only how leukemic stem cells work, but honestly, even how normal stem cells work. And you know, that for sure will take us a long time to sort of tackle all those different kinds of mysteries that are still there.
0: Well, thank you so much, and we wish you the best of luck in tackling all of these mysteries.
2: Well, Thank you all for uh, the invitation to join your podcast. Have a lot of fun. All right, Christopher
1: Park on the show. Fascinating interview, really fluent guy. I love talking to guys who are, I'm so jealous, you know, when he says, yeah, we're developing a human antibody for use human," I'm like, dang. I wish I could develop some stuff that was going to go into a human. I mean, that's like my dream. So he's living my dream and he's he's doing good work. I thought it was a lovely interview. I think I learned a lot. How about you, Kiki?
0: Oh, I learned so much. I mean, he said he's a pathologist. And so I think there is so much we can learn from studying the pathologies, how things go wrong, and then... Really look at that to figure out how can we make them right again? What is this comparison between the disease state and the normal state? How can we use that to our benefit? Again, like you said, he's got, he's got so many lines of inquiry going on too. He's just a curious guy asking lots of questions.
1: Got it popping off, Christopher Park. He does. He just had a kid too, by the way. So he everybody did.
0: Congratulations to he's him. He's doing it
1: all in spite of it all. He's spawning. He's you know shooting the spawn out there in the world.
0: <laughs> and his wife is probably doing a wonderful job taking care of this new Let's child. Be so congratulations, Let's be and we're going to wish her strength.
1: <laughs> She's doing it strength. all. We all know. That.
0: Go, mom. Mommies go. are the best. I yes. love you, mom. Okay, so it's time, though, for our stem cell podcast rant. And this is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. I mean, we don't know for sure, but maybe. And what are we going to rant about today?
1: What are we going to rant about today? <laughs> yeah, this is usually where I come in, but I just felt you stirring. Yeah. I feel like there's something in your heart and on your mind that needs to come out, Kiki, it's because stirring. earlier on you were talking about something with the GMOs, know, know. and you got heated up. Guys, rewind a minute 37 she started bugging out okay so she's gonna lead the rant kiki it's your show
0: i'm gonna go back to the the gmo issue no 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 <laughs> people no, living no, in I a cave that was, no that's just... <laughs> you're just angry i've got some feelings i will say that i've got some feelings <laughs>
1: Share them, please. And
0: one of them is, you know, recently there's a lot of political stuff going on and people are organizing protest for this March for that, this and whatever. and great. okay, we had the women's March on Washington and people did a great job of really staying on topic with their signage and their message. and it was this is a this is a march for women. We're supporting women, right? Not going off topic. You guys, in the future protests that happen, stay on topic. This is the best thing you can do. I mean, seriously, what are you going to do? You're at a march for scientists and you're bringing a sign that's like, you should eat vegetarian, animal welfare rights for blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't distill the message. I mean, don't mix it all up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. I, I totally see that. You know what I think it is? There's, like, professional protesters. I don't know if they're professional or are they just professional nothing and they just love to protest because they oh. see a protest. They're like, I'm going to go get my message out there. I'm a vegan, and these women need to know it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, I'm a vegan, and, yeah, I'm kind of a scientist. Oh. I, I like science, but I'm a vegan. You MRFers and listen to me. So I'm with you. Don't hijack the protest. Show some
0: respect. Right, and we're talking about this March for Science Make it for science. Yes. Don't make it about all sorts of other things. Stay on topic. That's the strongest thing.
1: And I have to (sighs) say, I'm going to get out here. I'm going to (sighs) portray my political leanings like it's not already perfectly obvious. But if I see some anti-climate people pawning off their protests, that they're for science, I'm going to get upset. I'm not going to do anything violent, or at least I'm not going to tell you I'm going to do it on the air. But I, who knows? I'm very unpredictable. So if you're a denier,
0: go have you your own protest. Science march.
1: Yes. Have a denier march. Have a march where everyone says no. Go
0: someplace else.
1: Go someplace else. I'm with you. You know, you got me angry. <laughs> dang marchers. You need
0: to march for what you believe in. Stay at stakes. Get in your own march. Stay focused, people. Have your own march if you want to talk about something else. Right. All right.
1: <laughs> all right. All right. All right, simmer down. Time to simmer
0: down because we're at the end of the show now. Everybody calm down. If you do have any rant ideas, send them to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email StemCellPodcast at gmail.com. Dalen, this is the end of episode 85 of the Stem Cell Podcast. What a great show. Lots of fun stuff. Chimeras. Oh, my gosh. We're going to talk more about that in episode 86 with Jun Woo. Coming. So excited. I hope everyone is too, like Dalen said, Send us your questions if you have a specific question about the chimera research. And I am looking forward to the next show.
1: Me too, Kiki. But for now, we're out.